Scripture reading is 1 John 4, 7 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Sojourn Community Church here at Midtown. My name is Justin Carl, and I am the pastor of Next Steps here. And I'm so excited to preach the first sermon of 2019 here. And yes, woo, we can cheer. Yeah, we made it. We're here, guys. We're the people who are here. So thank you so much for being here. And I felt led to this passage and to this message because I thought about there could be nothing more important for Sojourn than to start 2019, to start our new year with a big picture of Jesus and the unshakable truth that God actually loves us. Not hypothetically, not theoretically, not in general, but in personal, specific. He knows your name. He knows the hairs on your head. He knew all the days of your life before one came to be that God actually loves you. And I want to start there, but it's tricky because uh, what is love? Our culture has a really hard time defining it. And when you look back at ancient cultures, a lot of them, their languages have three, five, six different words to describe love. So to help us out, I found a research study where these professional researchers ask elementary aged uh, girls what love was, okay? First one from Camila, we can enjoy these. Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. I have a three-year-old daughter. She has discovered the glory of a French fry. My calorie intake is dropping at every Chick-fil-A visit. Um, Check this one out. It's from Noel. Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt 
And then he wears it every day. See, the boys need to watch out for Noelle. She has already discovered one well-placed compliment from a woman can change everything. You know, it, it can just send you on a whole new course of life. Uh, next one is from Sophia. It says, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. In other news, Sophia's going to come up here and finish the message. So she's, <laughs> she's going to crush it for us. Uh, and one more serious one that I love from Aaliyah. It says, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. And I want you to feel the full force of people forget. Because we have a hard time believing these kind of deep truths from God, let alone other people. And I want to step out on one limb that I think is pretty safe. Everyone in this room has probably heard at some point a message or a sign or something that God loves you. But I want to step out on a second limb and put myself on it that I have a hard time believing that all the time. Does anyone else join me on that limb? You have a hard time believing God loves you all the time? And this is a huge problem because there are no healthy Christians who are not living the reality that God loves them. Let me repeat that. There are no healthy Christians on planet earth that are not living in the reality God loves them. To be a healthy Christian means to be completely drenched and understand and encapsulated by that your reality is defined, that God actually loves you. And so as we dive into these big truths today, as we circle around them, my goal is to take love out of the abstract and to bring it all the way into the particular for us. It's the difference between seeing a map of Italy on the wall and going to visit Italy. It's the difference between someone saying, here's a book about basketball or just watching LeBron James play once. You'll understand what's happening. The book, no help. Seeing LeBron in person, it's a totally different thing. Basketball. So today, as we cling to these truths, let's make them go from abstract to God taking him at his word and saying, this is true for me. And the first two truths are from verses seven and eight. Turn with me to the screen. It says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love, does not love, does not know God because God is love. And the first truth is this, that love is from God. Love is actually from God. Science says it's from our DNA, it's from our brains, it's from our pheromones and our hormones and a desire to reproduce. Our sentimentality says, hey, it's that feeling that someone actually likes me or someone said the mystery of romance starting or, or the affection of a hug. And that can be love too, but it's not the source of love. And God claims that love has an actual source. When our culture talks about love, it's always something to be earned something to be deserved. But God says love isn't earned or, or deserved. It's given and received as a gift. God's not holding love hostage. 
God's the source of love and he's giving it to us. And here's where it's helpful to have a working definition of what biblical love is. And we're going to use it throughout today. So it's good we kind of lock in here. That biblical love is affection, is this feeling, the emotion, this, this energy, this actual affection, and other-centered commitment often resulting in sacrificial actions. Affection without commitment to the other is just lust. It's self-serving. It's this idea that I have all this emotion or all this feeling for this thing, but I don't desire their good. I don't actually love the other person. I love me and I love what this person makes me feel about me. Commitment without sacrifice. Uh, Commitment or even sacrifice without affection is obligation, duty, which while can be a noble thing, that's not love. Duty and obligation is not love. It may have sacrifice in it, but it's not love. And God's the source of biblical love so much, he can drop a second truth bomb that he just can plainly say without qualification that God is love. God can say of himself that God is love. Now, it doesn't work the other way. Love is God. It doesn't work that way as much as grass is green works as green as grass, okay? But our culture begs to differ and insists that God is not love, but instead, love is God. Our culture insists that whatever brings you pleasure, whatever feels satisfying, whatever's enjoyable, whatever makes us feel good about ourselves, whatever wins approval or gains acceptance or provides meaning for our life, that's what love is. And then you should make it God of your life, governing right and wrong, assigning your values, defining your purpose. That's how you have meaning and passion in your life. And that's the lie our culture slips us. And it's tricky because that's such a tempting lie. And why is it so tempting? It's tempting because God created you to be loved. You were created by God to be loved by God. He created you to shower his affection and other-centric commitment to you in your personal relationship with you. That's what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. And we, but we know how the story goes. Adam and Eve chose against God's love. They chose to love themselves. They chose to trust themselves. Instead of trusting the judgment of God, they made their own judgments about this world and what was good and what was bad and chose the apple instead of choosing God's way of life. Sin is faithlessness. Sin is lovelessness towards God and his ways. And the consequences of sin have been devastating. Sin has brought death. Sin brings disease, hate, addiction, abandonment, abuse, pride. And most of all, it's separated us from God. It's disconnected from the God who is love himself. And where it's left us is these wandering people, always wandering, wandering, wishing, wishing to be loved, doing anything for love. Whatever feels like love, grabbing it and making it God of our life to maybe this will bring me purpose or life. We were created to be loved by God though. There's a greater love out there for us. Our longings are real to be loved by the God who is love itself. So we look at verse nine because the author starts to argue for all the ways that God actually loves us. Look Look with me. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So that we might live through him. And when God says this fancy word manifest, another word for be presented, God showed his love for us among us. That God sent his son to dwell among us. And we kind of focus on the Christmas and Easter of our faith, right? We focus that God came into the world as this baby Jesus. And we focus on the cross and resurrection of Jesus. But that word among us has to challenge us to say that God manifested his love through every breath and second of Jesus's life. We shouldn't miss the God of the in-between his life and death as we focus rightly on the cross. And so what I want to do, the writer of 1 John, he's also the writer of the gospel of John. He lived and felt and touched and heard Jesus eyeball to eyeball. And he gives us a detailed account in the gospel of John of just how this God loved us, just how God presented his love. And so in the interest of that, I want to dive us in to the gospel of John to see in every chapter of his life that God was loving us with affection and other-centered commitment so that we can start to have not an abstract idea of God's love, but see how God actually loved people. And so let your mind wander into building these kind of word pictures as I describe the love of God throughout the book of John. In John 1, Jesus describes his love that he enters the world as a sacrifice for us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 2, Jesus shows up to a wedding that ran out of wine. And he takes some water and he makes over 100 gallons of wine. There ain't no party that needs 100 gallons of wine. He made 100 gallons of wine to show the overwhelming blessing, favor, and love that was about to flow through him in this new covenant to the entire world. In John 3, Nicodemus, this ruler of the Pharisees, he comes to Jesus at night because he's ashamed and says, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, you're not going to have eternal life through getting it right from being religious. You can only have eternal life by believing in me, high and lifted up, sacrificed on a cross, just like the snake was on the pole for Moses and Exodus. In John 4, after meeting a religious person, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman. And you see his great affection to meet her in the heat of the sun, to cross cultural barriers that would have put him at risk of maybe being accused of adultery or stoning, to talk with this woman personally. And instead, instead of saying you can't have life of God because of your sin, instead her scarlet past, he goes, hey, come to me and live. And you can be loved by the real God in spirit and truth and become a worshiper and leave all your other loves behind. In John 5, Jesus meets this crippled man at the gate of Jerusalem, and he bids him to come up and walk. And then he walks over to the temple and confronts the scholars to say, you search the scriptures to find eternal life, but I'm standing right here. This Jesus' affection is for the beggar and the scholar, for the PhD and the person who's been crippled all of their life. In John 6, we see that Jesus shows his affection to a crowd of 5,000 people who are following him in Hungary in the countryside. He takes a couple of loaves and he multiplies it for bread for all 5,000 people. And then he declares at the end, he says, and I am the bread of life. 
Jesus tells us that the hunger we felt all of our life has been pointing us to a greater hunger for Jesus and his love. Likewise, in John 7, Jesus comes to the Feast of Booths, and on the last day, he stands up at great personal risk that he could have been stoned, he could have been captured, he could have been killed, and he stands at the festival, and he says, if anyone first, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Our thirst that we felt all of our lives for water has been pointing us to a deeper, greater thirst for God and his love. John 8, he shows this affection to this woman caught in adultery, surrounded by men and bystanders who want to stone her. Instead of condemning her, Jesus challenges the crowd, sends them away, and invites this woman to leave a life of sin, leave all other loves, and to follow the greatest love of all. In John 9, he heals a blind man, a man born blind, and he gives him his sight and then tells us that I am the light that stepped down into the darkness and challenged everyone else to say anyone who says they know God apart from me is truly blind. In John 10.10, Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd. He is the shepherd of of our souls. He has the affection and the willingness to sacrifice that when the wolves come of our sin and suffering, he says, I lay down my life. The hired hands, they run. The hired hands of our other loves of this world, they will run from you. All of our sin and suffering, these wolves, they will attack and bite us. But Jesus is the one who says, I lay down my life for you. And he gives us this in John 10.10. Jesus came, the thief comes only steal, kill, and destroy but I came that they may have life and they could have it abundantly. In John 11, Jesus shows his great affection by weeping over his dead friend Lazarus. Even though he knows he's about to raise him from the dead, he stops, he weeps and empathizes with Mary and Martha and weeps with them and then raises his friend from the dead. In John 12, Jesus loves us by riding into Jerusalem, not on a chariot, not as a champion, but on a donkey to say, I'm the humble way that everyone, everyone can approach me and know the Father. In John 12, Jesus, or John 13, he washes the disciples' feet. They were so dirty from walking the nasty roads, and he bends down and he scrubs the dirt out of their feet to show us we have a God of affection for the big parts of life, but also in the little, little details. In John 14, he affectionately says, when you die, I have prepared a room for you in my Father's house. God wants us to see that he has made a space for us. He has thought about us. He has made room for us. In John 16, we see that Jesus loves our heart by assuring us one day all of our sorrows will turn to joy, that he has overcome the world. And he says this about the Father. He says, for God himself loves you because I, you have loved me and believe that I came from God. In John 17, Jesus goes on affectionately praying and praying over all the disciples and ends it with, and I pray for everyone else who doesn't see me but yet will believe through my, the, your words, disciples. And that's y'all. We're the people that throughout history, this message has been passed down through the scriptures and the actual church all the way to today that Jesus in John 17 was praying with you who believe in mine. In John 18, his sacrifice becomes even more real. 
as he's arrested in the garden of Gethsemane. And he doesn't fight it, but accepts the fate to die for the sins of the world as his sacrifice begins with insults. In John 19, we see Jesus standing trial and then his love gets painful as he becomes a sacrifice for us, beaten, bloodied, whipped, dragging his cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull, to be crucified in front of all and stripped bare. His sacrifice for our sins, that he would take the wrath of God for us, saying from the cross, it is finished, meaning the wrath due for our sins has been fully satisfied by his death. In John 20, we see Jesus resurrects from the dead and he goes and he appears to his disciples, those who ran away from him at the arrest, those who departed immediately after pledging their allegiance, but he doesn't come in wrath or anger. His affection is great. And he says, peace be with you. He loves them even though they left him. In John 21, we see this Jesus resurrected from the dead, sitting on the beach, cooking some fish, inviting his disciples to come in from the water and dine with him as he gently restores Peter. Church, this is your Jesus. He didn't just love you to come and then love you to leave. He loved you everything in between. And that's how we start to take this big truth, God loves us, and to say, wow, if he loved all these people with all their flaws and all their stories and all their stuff, then he must actually love me too when he says it. And I present this whole book of John to you to encapsulate John 20. And it reads like this. The writer of the Gospel of John, the writer of our passage today, says the Gospel of John is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one to save our mess, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Christian, as you hear these words today, I want you to zero in for the rest of the passage as we continue to go deeper in his love and see the effects of his love in our life. But if you're not a Christian today, I really want to invite you to look and believe and think about this Jesus. He's for you. He actually loves you. I'm going to give you an invitation at the end of the service to repent and believe in him and say, I want that as my God. I want that as the love I've been looking for. And so please contemplate these things as we continue to dive in. Look at verses 10 through 12 through me from the passage as we see the price of the Father's love. In this love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Jesus lived a life of love and then died on a cross or rather was sent to a cross for our sins and to save us from them. And this has always been God's plan. And this is propitiation is a big fancy word, but they leave it in the text because we don't have a good word to really describe that word. And propitiation means this. It means to offer a sacrifice for us, to offer atonement for us, to make a substitution for us, that Jesus would die in our place. And propitiation is needed because 
God is just and sin can't be ignored and sin can't be overlooked. And God is love, but he's not just love. Because God is love and wherever his love goes, so come all of his attributes with him. They're not opposed to each other, but they're one unified whole. God is loving, but he's also just. He's also holy. He also has wrath against evil and sin. As mad as we are about sin in the world, God is infinitely more offended and angry with sin. God is fully powerful. God is all-knowing. God is eternal. And all these attributes, there's dozens of lists that describe it from Scripture. They come with him. And when we see the cross is all important, because when we see a theology of who God is, he's all of these things at once. When we see the cross rightly, we see all of the attributes of God come together in a moment. The love and grace and mercy of God interact with the justice, the holiness, the wrath, the fairness, the quality, the eternality of God in an instant. That the wrath of God for my sins and your sins would be satisfied in the broken body of a sinless Jesus, his one and only begotten son. And that's what the depth of propitiation does. He pays the penalty for our sins deserved. And he does this because he loves us. It's for God's glory in this theater of the universe. That God would be great. That God would be famous. That God would be the ultimate thing. But he makes this move at all to love us. That he gets most glory by redeeming sinners who are helpless to save themselves by a love that they can neither earn or deserve, but is freely given and received. To help us meditate even further on this idea of propitiation, which is the very core of the gospel, the substitution that God pulls for us, I want to turn our attention to this quote from a, a pastor theologian named Tim Keller. It says, the gospel is that Jesus lived the life you should have lived, the life that Adam and Eve were set up to live, and died the death you should have died in your place, so God can receive you, not for your record and and sake, but for his record and sake. It gets to the very heart of the gospel, and I like to put it in just four simple words so we can always remember it and carry it with us, man. We can put it right in our pocket and think about it all the time. And the gospel in four words is Jesus in my place. Where he should have been, he went for me. Jesus in my place. That my record of wrongs is wiped away. And one day when I stand before God, he will see Jesus' perfect record instead of mine. Because no one will make themselves right with God. God makes sinners right with him through Jesus Christ. And he does this because he loves us. That's how verse nine says that you might live through Jesus. To follow Jesus means his patterns of love is not a burden, but now a delight to love other people. We join God in loving other people. Look again at verse 11 and 12. It says, beloved, if God so so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected 
in us. And so here is this wonderful magic. We ought to love one another if we follow this God of love. But the magic of love is this. Has anyone ever had loved someone and it was unrequited? Loved someone and it was unreceived? Loved someone and it was rejected? Raise your hand if you're a heartbreak kid. You ever had your heart broken? Man, y'all are well loved. I'll put my hand higher, okay? There's a sadness to loving and being rejected. But there is an absolute magic to when you love someone and they love you back. There's an absolute magic when God loves you and you receive it and then you start to give it back to the world. And the magic is it's in the scripture. It says, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I don't know how that works, but it says it. It's God's perfect love when we receive it and it starts to change us and it starts to flow out of us, becomes more perfect. There's more of God's love in the world. There's more perfection of God's love in the world. That the hope for the world is that we complete the circle of these wandering souls that wish to be loved, become loved in Christ. And then his love goes back to God and to this broken world. That's how his mission goes forth. That's the plan of God, that his love would be perfected in and through you. Because that's what it is. When two people meet each other and love each other romantically, you, you get a marriage. When two strangers get to know each other and choose love, you get a friendship. When a whole group of people decides, I want to bind together to be something more you get a church. And that's the magic of love. It creates a whole new goodness in the world that's greater than the sums of the two lovers. And that's our hope for sojourn. It's my hope for 2019, that God would love us and we would accept this so deeply that we create a whole new goodness in Louisville and our lives with each other as mutually given and received love. But look with me in verse 13, because God doesn't just leave us out on a limb and saying, all right, here's all the information. Here's all the inspiration you need. Look at Jesus. Look at your life. You're good to go. That's not how God works. Instead, he says this, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. When you accept Jesus in my place, God gives you the third part of the Trinity. God himself, God his spirit, comes and makes home with you. That word of abide could be dwell or make home with you. God takes up residence in you and gives you the power. That's why the spirit is called the power a good bit in the scripture. It's a person, but it brings a new power to your life to actually love others, actually receive God's love, actually love God back. You need the spirit or you will never accomplish the loving others part. You'll never even receive God's love apart from his spirit. But once you have God's spirit, you have this ongoing relationship with God where you are receiving his love. And this, script, this passage is so great because if you're like, okay, how does that work? How does this spirit dwelling in me work? And he gives us three things that it will do for you. Three things that for the Christian, the spirit is constantly doing. And so walk with me through this passage. You can look at your bulletin, it'll be on the screen. The first is confession as witness. Look at verse 14 and 15. It says, and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, 
God abides in him, and he in God. So the first thing the Spirit does in the heart of those who've accepted Jesus in my place, it makes us testify to the gospel. We testify our witness that God has sent his son into the world. A Christian gives this clear testimony of the history of the world that Jesus has stepped in to our darkness. But it comes, verse 15, almost as a confession. Instead of us talking about it abstractly, we say, I was the one looking for love and I found it in Christ. I was the one with sin problem. I was the one who couldn't save myself. But Christ saved me. Because the Spirit makes us happy, the Spirit makes us humble. And when it works through us, genuinely, things come out more as a confession than just a proclamation. The second thing the Spirit's doing, it turns us into these witnesses. But the second is it makes abiding as love's homemaking. Look at verse 16. We hit on this a little bit. But it says, so we can come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. That God is love, and whoever abides in his love abides in God, and God abides in him. That word abide we never use really in our culture anymore other than the big Lebowski, but you can think abide is a dwelling with. It's a coming down and dwelling with in your house. It's like a household word. It means that God makes his home in you. Or rather, you find a home in God. That spiritually, God wants the intimacy of abiding as in eating dinner around a table or sitting on the couches or talking on the back porch on a summer's night. He wants that level of intimacy. So we become these witnesses. We're brought in as this family together. And then the third thing the Spirit does right from the passage, verse 17 and 18, is the Spirit gives us a confidence for today and the last day. Look what it says. It says, by this love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The Spirit comes and dwells in us and gives us a power to not live fearful lives anymore. We don't have to be scared of everything tomorrow anymore. We don't have to be scared of tomorrow and we don't have to be scared of the judgment day. If Jesus is in your place and he's the propitiation for you, you will stand with confidence, not in yourself on judgment day, but in God, specifically in Jesus that he has done the works that are acceptable to God for you. And this radically changes your outlook in life. When the biggest test of all time has been atoned for, we can deal with the tests and trials of life in our day-to-day life. So the Spirit gives us a confidence for today and for the last day. We don't fear for our souls any longer because God truly loves us. So I have two applications for us today, church, and they're really just two summaries of everything we've talked about so far. And they jump right out of the text. That's why I love this passage. Verse 19, the first application is let the indicative drive the imperative. We love because he first loved us. The message of the whole New Testament is that in Christ, God loves us. Or simply, the title of the sermon, God loves us. 
loves us. And we spiritually get confused and things break down when we try to live the imperative, the command, love others or do anything. It must flow from the indicative that's always true, that never changes. God's not moving from this position, that God loves you. And from that, we can live all the imperatives of the New Testament that are summed up in love God and love others. So church, as a people that forget, as a Justin who forgets, live from the indicative. We cannot emphasize it enough as the power, ability, grounds, source. He is the source to live out the rest of our faith. God loves you and he means it and he lived it and he died for it and he rose for it and he gives it to you in Christ. That is what God is doing. And for me, Psalm 92.2 is an instruction of how to do this. You throw that up there for me. The psalmist says this, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. So this is what I've started to do. And you can adapt it for you or don't do this, but I encourage you as a person who forgets, I have to do this. When I brush my teeth in the morning and stare in the mirror, or if I forget then when I first get in my car and the morning routine is over and I breathe that sigh of relief that we've gotten all the kids out the door and I'm dressed properly, hopefully, I breathe in the reality to declare God's steadfast love over my life and my day, to simply say and say out loud, God loves me. Not God loves the world, but God loves me. And I want to start my day in that reality. And then when I lay my head on my pillow, when we finally got all the chores done and life done, and we take that second big exhale, of, that we'd say back to God, you are faithful to me. And then spend as long as you can think on your pillow or praying with a roommate or a spouse or whatever. What were all the ways that God loved you today? That you felt his faithfulness to his promises if you want to step out of the reality of the world, running from love to love to love, and step into the reality that God loves you, you're going to have to build some, some principles, some rhythms, some practices to remind you of what's truly true spiritually, but ultimately and eternally, that God actually loves his people. The second application is this verse 20 and 21, and it's just taking this idea that God loves us and love others from the individual to the communal. As it says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The natural outflow that God loves you and that we're called to love is to love everyone in immediate connection to you. With a priority first of those who are in a church setting, a Christian setting with you, but it overflows to everyone and anyone you encounter in your life, connected to, responsible for, acquaintances to, we are called to be a people of love. And John argues from the lesser to the greater. It's like, hey, if you claim to love an invisible God, then it should be easy to love his visible people. If you claim to love an invisible God, then it should be easy, should be an obvious step to love his visible people. 
So I want to end us there with on the night Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Likewise, he took a cup of wine. So this is the wine of the, my blood of the new covenant shed for you. It's our tradition. The wine is marked by twine. Then we have another cup of juice, whatever your conscience permits. We have communion stations in the front half, in the front for the front half of the room, in the back for the back half of the room. Gluten-free communion is to my left and alcohol-free communion to my left, to your right. But I want to make an appeal. This meal is only for those who are assured and convinced that God loves them. And they have repented for all the ways that they have failed at the imperative to love one another. Take a second to pray and confess our inadequacies and then come up and receive a tangible sign of God's great grace and love for you. If you're not a Christian, I ask that you'd remain seated. But if you have questions about this sermon, if you want to take Christ today, if you've been searching for the ultimate love for a long time, whether you've known that or not, I want to invite you. Step into the prayer and guidance room. There's people there who would love to pray with you, to explain things further, have your questions answered. But take Christ today. Don't enter 2019 and the rest of your life without the God who actually loves you. He is the love we've been longing for and missing. So take Christ Church, you were meant to be loved, and the truth is that God has come to love you. God presented his love in Christ. God paid the price for his love, and God gives you the power to live this love. So love everyone as Christ has loved you.